You're listening to Real Estate Real Fast. Each episode, we discuss all things real estate, whether that's strategies for investors, ways the average homeowner can maximize profits when selling their home, or understanding market trends and more. Real Estate Real Fast is brought to you by ListingSpark, automated software that takes you through the complete home selling process and sells your home faster, safer, and at a fraction of the cost. All right, we're live. Guys, welcome to episode 18 of Real Estate Real Fast. I'm your host, Aaron Gistel. A little bit about myself. I'm the broker and one of the co-founders here at Listing Spark. For those of you coming back and, and our repeat listeners, really appreciate you joining us week after week. For those who are on for your first time listening in, just to give you a little background about real estate real fast, we like to just talk about anything real estate, usually with an emphasis on investment real estate. A big part of our core business at Listing Spark is working with a lot of investors, even though we also work with your average home seller, home buyer, the majority of our business comes from investors. So we like to cater to them and provide content that's going to be really useful for investors. And then that also just translates over to your average person who's just interested in learning more about real estate. So I'm super excited about our, our guests this week. I've got James from Intera. We had the opportunity to kind of chat earlier in the week. It's crazy. I think we were set to talk for 30 minutes that carried on for about an hour. So Super pumped about what you're doing over at Intera. I think it's some really exciting. And we've kind of built this agenda for the podcast today on what are you guys doing over there at scale that can kind of translate to your average investor, or your average person. Before I kind of jump ahead too far, I'm going to turn it over to James. Give us a little rundown about your background and, and what you're doing over at Intera. Yeah, thanks, Aaron. And and thanks for having me on the, the program. I'm I enjoyed our conversation earlier this week and happy to continue it. So just a little bit of background about me. I, I've been in the prop tech space for maybe 10 years or so. And for those of you that aren't following the Silicon Valley buzzwords, just prop tech is just technology surrounding property, the buying, trading, financing, occupying of property. And I began there, I don't know, maybe eight or nine years ago with a company that's trying to build marketing solutions for mortgage and the real estate profession. I started doing that actually right. So I guess it's been more than 10 years. It was right after 2008. It's a tough time to be trying yep. to work with mortgage firms, but it's actually, it's, you know, kind of helpful in times like this. We're certainly, I don't think we're yet and hopefully won't be in days like we were back then, but it's useful to be able to look back and say, okay, when I started doing this whole thing, it was rough and if not an ideal right now, and there's some lessons we can draw. I spent a number of years, almost five years at a company called Qualia, helping to build out what is, has become the industry leading title and escrow software. So if you purchased or sold a home, there's a, I think like a, a one in three or maybe better chance that the, that the property was traded, right? So the property was traded, that were traded through technology that Qualia provides and and from there, now I'm, I'm here at Intera Realty. And just to give a, a little bit of a quick background on what Intera does, and Aaron, you already touched on it, we're, we're operating single family real estate, single family rental investment at scale, right? So I think there's some things that we're learning at scale that can apply across the board. But here's what we do in a nutshell. So Intera provides soup to nuts, beginning to end services for large scale and medium scale investors that are purchasing. Single family, that's what single family rentals. It's exactly what it sounds like. Single family homes with the intent to rent them and hold them for a period of time. 
So on the front end, we provide analyst services and our own algorithms and, and machine learning, machine aided analysis to help you iterate and build the buy boxes and find the types of properties that you're looking for. And then on my side, my, my title is head of negotiations. I oversee the team that actually goes out and gets that stuff for you. So if you're an investor, basically you sit down and you tell us what type of things you're looking for. Our software helps you find them and our people go and get them for you. That's the summary. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. It's funny. You mentioned Qualia. So we have listing spark, which are brokerage arm here. And we also have spark title our title and escrow arm, and we use Qualia. Oh, and okay, good. It's funny, back when we first yeah. started Spark Title back in 2018, that was, Qualia was just getting legs at that time. We elected to go with RamQuest, and it was one of the worst decisions we ever made. I mean, you know, we're, we're technologists at heart, so we always want to kind of lean into the exciting part about the real estate technology. And I think we, we fumbled the ball kind of going with RamQuest, learned from our mistake, because for anybody that's in the title world that's used RamQuest, it's man, it's it's like somebody handing you a laptop. That's like the first laptop that was ever created, you know, from 20 years ago and trying to trying to figure it out. Whereas Qualia is like the newest version of everything. And our reviews, like our Google reviews for Spark Title, shot through the roof once we started using Qualia. Now a lot of that's based on our team. They do an incredible job, but it sure. makes their job so much easier and communication and making sure everybody's kind of tied together in one kind of seamless loop involved in the transaction. And I'm sure you got a mountain of good experience in the real estate and, and kind of the prop tech space working at Qualia and that yeah. just from the from the short bit I've learned about what's going on in Antera, I'm sure you've learned a tremendous amount in the time that you've been there. And and I know you guys are doing a lot of really cutting edge things leaning into technology that's helping you acquire in main properties at scale. So let's let's talk a little bit about kind of the strategies you're using at Atera that could translate over to your average investor. Yeah, for sure. I, I wanna begin here. And th there's something that, there's a, a thought process that guides Terra's entire investment strategy and the strategies that we encourage our investors to, to follow and the strategies that our technology enables. And that thought process is this. This could definitely apply to an investor of any size. An easy mistake to make when you're looking for the right properties to target for a rental property is to be thinking, actually, the way I just phrased it in terms of what are the right properties to target. But here's the thing. If you are renting out a property, you're letting out a property that you own, you're, it's a mistake to think of the property as your business because the property itself doesn't give you a dime. Where's the money come from? Money comes from the people that are renting the property. So this seems obvious, but it's a really common mistake is you look at, you look and say, well, geez, what, what do you want? What do you, what do you want to buy James? Well, I'd like to find, I'd like to find a, a nice place that oh, not too much maintenance, maybe close to a university. And it's got like a, you know, regular, you know, you know, and I want to, you know, I don't know, close to good transportation and jobs. Who knows what? The problem is that to begin with is the wrong question. What do you want to buy? Wrong question. The right question is who do you want to sell to? Right. And the, and the, and the difficult part about that is that those two things are interrelated like tremendously. Right. 
But if you start backwards, like who do you want to sell to leads to who do what do you need to buy? But if you start backwards, then you're all upside down. And that's, I think that's where most, I think that's where most investors start out thinking. Does that make sense, Aaron? Are you following that? Yeah. No, it does. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. I mean, I, I think for a lot of people, it's a, they immediately jump to what's maybe going to be best or easiest for me rather than maybe what's going to be the highest and best use for the property that I'm, I'm looking to acquire or, or yeah, so I, I I think I follow you there. Who's going to rent yeah. this thing? That's right. what we're really asking. So so your strategy needs to be focused around how you're going to serve the people that are going to be providing the income for your for your business here, right? Or your investment or whatever, providing the the revenue for it. And those are people, right? They're families, they're students, they're, they're whatever they are. And if you think from that perspective, that it it greatly opens up how you can look at the what types of properties you're looking at. So I'll give you like a, a, a really simple example and a classic SFR investment example. Let's look at like a university town and, you know, like college rentals. One way to look at this, the property first way to look at this would be to say, well, I want to find something that's close to the university, walkable. And, and who knows what, maybe I can at least three bedrooms and they've, and I want extra bathrooms, right? Okay. Another way to look at this would be what kind of tenant do I want? Well, I want tenants that are not going to have parties. Maybe I want tenants that aren't going to destroy the property that I just purchased. What else do I want? Well, I'd like long-term tenants, maybe like ones that are going to maybe more than one year or two years. And actually, I'm not so sure I really want like 10 people in the home. I might like tenants that have, you know, that are only going to have like two or three occupants. I'm just using this as an example, but that might drive you to say, hmm, okay, it sounds like graduate students might be what you're looking for. And, and those, and maybe even a specific type of graduate student. And what Interest technology allows you to do, the way why, the reason why we encourage our investors to think this way is with the way that we've parsed our front end listings, right? A proprietary front end listings, you have to work with Interest needs to go beyond what you can see on an MLS or on a Zillow or whatever. You could do those types of searches and filters to say, okay, well, let's just get crazy, right? I think the ideal thing for me in College Station, Texas at A&M would be graduate students that are studying animal husbandry. And so therefore, I want to find properties that have enough space and maybe a shed for a chicken coop and whatever, because that's my target. And Jared can help you find those. And when you find the property that fits your target customer, instead of finding a property and then hoping you can find customers for it, you have much more successful outcomes. This is actually kind of hard to do at scale. It's hard to do if you've got $500 million that you're trying to spend. It's a lot easier to do if, you've, if you're just trying to buy one house or two houses or three or four. So a medium or small investor, like, like you or I would be, Eric, if you and I want to put some money together. It's easier for you and I to look and say, all right, we both live in Austin. Like, who do we think are good renters for us? Let's find a property that fits the sort of people that we want to rent to. You know, it's funny you mentioned that. I, I had a rental property that I had here in Austin many years ago, and I thought I was a genius. It was a four-bedroom house. And when I started my real estate career almost 20 years ago, it was actually by UT. I was got my real estate license while I was going to school. And I started out just doing renting around campus and I would find out know, just students, student housing that was available. And so what I 
what I picked up while I was doing that was, you know, student housing goes for a higher rent because they rent out based on a per bedroom basis rather than, you know, for the house or the apartment itself. So the the places that were renting out to students always seemed to get a higher rent. They always had a guarantor because their parents was was guaranteeing the lease and paying the rent. So when I bought this house for Mitsubishi rental property, it wasn't actually that close to campus, but I said, man, if I can, if I can target students, I can probably get 10, even 20% higher rents. And I'm going to have guaranteed income and guaranteed lease coming in the door. And I did that. And I ended up selling that property because every one of those tenants that I ever had beat the living crap out of that property. And I was spending all this money on repairing it. And I was always going over right. there. And what's funny is if I would have looked at it through that lens you just described, I would have probably done what everybody else in the neighborhood did and rent it out to your average young professional or a family or somebody that was probably more prone to stay there for two, three, four years, not beat it up, not take up every, like, for example, I had four girls that rented it out and three of them had boyfriends that moved in during the course of their lease. So I have this house that has seven 20 year old kids living in it. And you can imagine what happened to the house. So what, really what could go wrong? Perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, what could I'd go never wrong thought there? of it that way, but extremely insightful. Yeah. So uh, let me throw you, I want to throw a specific one at you, like a hot tip, right? From actually a friend of mine who owns seven or eight properties like this. Sometimes this is counterintuitive. If you start thinking, well, what's the right type of tenant? You reminded me of this when your tenants are likely to stay in the same place for years, especially if you're a smaller investor, you don't want to be churning over the property management costs. They go way up and the more turnover that you have, it's a lot easier to keep the same tenant and replace it. Surprisingly, Section 8, and if anybody that doesn't know what that term is, Section 8 is, you know, so government subsidized housing for low-income families can be really, really low maintenance because the government subsidizes the check. The money, and similar to what you described, right? The money's easy to be accounted for, right? It's not super lucrative, but at scale it can be. And by scale, it can even be three or four properties. And the families tend to take really good care of these properties because they're usually families that expect to live there for a long time. They found a nice house. It's subsidized. They can afford it. And counter to what people might guess and the and the stigma about Section 8 housing, the reality is that the families that live there, they take good care of the properties. Now, there's challenges with Section 8, by the way, which is that the government standards are super high. So like if if like if the state like changes the laws or what type of thermostat you have to have, you, you gotta change yeah. it. You can't budget. But the point is yeah, like, they've got like a checklist of things that they require. Yeah. Yeah, that makes it tricky, but there's but there's advantage and disadvantages. And if you're thinking first about who do I want my, just like any other business would be, any other business should start with who do I want my customer to be? And then I work back my product from there. If you're a single family Ratzel investor, the home that you have purchased is your product and the renter is your customer. Find the right product for your customer. I love that. That's, that's such a good way to look at it. I, I would say most... Most investors don't view it through that lens, right? They're, they're very property first, whether they're looking something. And I mean, I, I think it's a valid argument to say, look, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to have to travel to have to manage this property. I need to get something new. Sure. But I still think you can look at it through that lens and be successful doing that. It's incredible insight. The difference between the mentality of a rental investor versus a flipper or versus somebody who's looking to make their money from, you know, they're, they're hoping to get their biggest return from the appreciation of the property. Right. Right. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just a different type of investment. 
right? Sure. So sure. if your investment strategy is centered around regular income from renters, then that needs to be your first consideration is who are my renters? Yeah, that's great. So I, I, I love that insight. I, I, I can't wait to share that with some people because I think that's just a completely different lens that people should be certainly looking through for sure. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about, obviously, Intera is dealing with large, sometimes large scale funds. They've got to deploy, you know, like we talked about, they, they've got half a billion dollars to deploy and they've got investors that are expecting returns on that money. They're using single family homes as a vehicle to do that. So obviously mm -hmm. the numbers matter. Let's talk a little bit about the math. So let's, let's discuss like cal calculating cap rates, how you analyze a deal to make sure it fits the buy box and that, that client you're working with. I'll just kind of let you take it from there. Sure. So the, the messaging for Intera, by the way, a, a good question that you asked me when we talked about earlier this week, it's like, who does Intera serve, right? So we serve some of the, the single family rental investors. And also we do go down into mid tier that one of the mantras that, that we, that we have is that we can help the smaller investor to operate at scale if they don't necessarily have the infrastructure to do so. And we can also help our larger investors who already operate at scale to be as agile as the smaller investors. So, and that's hard to do. So for those that are listening to this conversation that are, which is probably most people, right? It, that are on the smaller end of it, you actually have a, an edge because of the agility that comes from not having, you know, reams of boards and investors and pension fund managers behind you. And you don't need to make decisions on 500 properties Maybe you're making 10 or 15 offers and you're hoping to win one or two. So let's talk about cap rate for, for a second, which you just brought up, Aaron. So the traditional way to look at a rental property investment, real estate, is to measure the return through what's called cap rate, capitalization rate. And it's been very, it's been a very effective shorthand for a number of years. And it's a very simple formula. You can look it up if you want to see it in writing, but it's actually very simple. So the cap rate is a percentage. It's expressed as a percentage. And it is simply the, the expected return on investment, the net, net, net return on investment, right? Divided by the, the estimated market value of the property. So annual return on investment divided by the market property. So that's net, right? So when you're looking at the investment, you take out, like the stuff that you experienced, Aaron, with that UT property, you got to take all that stuff out. You got to take out the, you got to take out the clogged plumbing lines. You got to take yeah. out the carpet you had to replace. You take all that stuff out. And whenever your estimate is, and then you, you add, you know, the black, the black is your rent and, and your annual appreciation. The red is your, the red's your expenses. And then the denominator is the market value of the property. and just for like quick math, right? So let's say that our annual return was going to be $20,000 and our property's value was $400,000. I think I got the math right. I think that would be 5%. You divide those together yeah. and you express that by saying that would be called a cap rate of five. All right. Cap rate's great in a market that is predictable. And it's a really good shorthand to compare unlike properties together. Right. It's a good shorthand to compare a property in Memphis with one in El Paso in a predictable market. All right. So if you are not a national investor in a, predict a predictable market, which 
newsflash. Nobody is, even if you right. are a national investor, we're not in a predictable market right now. This fails. It also starts to fall apart a little bit and become unnecessary if you are a regional or local investor, just like me and my wife trying to buy some property to invest, right? So what do we do instead of cap rate? Well, let's talk about why it doesn't succeed and why we're encouraging our large clients to move away from cap rate into something uh, similar, but different, which is internal rate of return. Um, so the problem is that our denominator, which is the market value of the home, is everybody knows it's shifting in a very volatile and unpredictable way. But the other problem, that, that would be like bad enough if we weren't compounded it by the fact that our numerator, what we're dividing that into, we're dividing into is an annual rate of return. And this isn't really the way that you should be thinking if you are a single family investor. In fact, an annual rate of return is complete, in a way it's like kind of silly for the, a one-year return, it's kind of silly for an investor. People are signing at least a one-year lease. By the time you buy the property, you're gonna do a little reno and you're not gonna have it filled until, I don't know, a couple of months. So by definition, you already have something a little bit goofy there, but it's especially goofy if you're a wise investor and you're planning on holding onto this property for four or five years, which our clients do. If you're not planning on holding onto a rental property for four or five years, this might not be the right type of investment vehicle for you because that's where this stuff starts to really get the benefit. Most of your expenses come up front, getting the property ready to rent because there's usually some renovation involved, updating the appliances, all that stuff. You need to own the property for long enough to recover the capital expenses, right? So what do we have instead? Well, we have something that's a lot easier for a smaller investor to calculate, which is internal rate of return. It's a lot like cap rate, but here's the difference. Instead of measuring one year on the top, right, on the numerator, instead of measuring one year of returns, you're estimating how long you plan to hold the property on. And then you are estimating the income for the net income for each one of those years. Now, it's a lot more complicated to do that if you're, do, if you're trying to look at a thousand properties, right? So if you are comparing cap rate versus IRR for a thousand properties, it's tricky because you have to look at every single market and you have to make guesses for where that market might be in one, two, four, five, six, seven years. Now, one thing that Intera does is we help our clients to do this with various like formulas that we've built and then just like our own insight from, I think we offered on, who even knows last year, some 30, 40,000 properties, a lot. But if you're listening to this and let's say you live here in Austin, like, like Aaron and I, the way you would calculate internal return is by just making best guesses and reasonable guesses on where you anticipate the market being. One year, two years, three years, four years, five years. Your best guesses on what you can collect for rent. Your best guesses on how often am I going to have to replace that refrigerator? Is that refrigerator going to go in three, in three years? And all these types of things, you estimate it. And then you have a number that's a much more predictable idea. And oh yeah, and then the last thing is your, your denominator isn't the current market value. Your denominator is you look at your estimated market value when you might want to liquidate the property, well, you might want to sell the property. So this provides, especially in a volatile market like ours, a much more realistic way to look at where things are, are gonna be. So another piece of advice is to take all the doom and gloom, which gets clicks, I get headlines. The real estate market's crashing. It's the worst thing in the world. And in like a year, nobody's going to have a house. I don't even know. Like that doesn't apply as much to this type of investment. If you're looking at a five, seven, 10 year hold period, 
there's no reason to worry about the price of real estate because it's going to appreciate over a seven to 10 year period. What's more concerning is the is your ability to rent the property and how much you can get for that rent. That's important. But what we're seeing, by the way, if you look at the numbers, is rental prices at these prices are not going down because people still need places to live and we still have low inventory for single family rental. So even though you have, I don't want to say crash, but it's certainly like fell hard, values on single family homes, rentals and leases have stayed stable. And if you think about the formula that I just laid out for you, that's a really good thing for an investor who's trying to rent property. Property value is going down, but the leases are staying stable. That makes it a good time to buy as long as, as, long as you don't think that the property is going to drop like another 50% in the next year. And I just don't see that. So that's, that's easier for a smaller investor to do. You know your neighborhood, you know the areas where you are. You know, it's, and it's a lot harder. So that's, a, that's the type of agility that I'm talking about that smaller investors can easily exercise. Well, and I think we're, we're, that's a really insightful way to look at it is, you know, if you're just looking at cap rate, there's a lot of deals that just don't look very good right now. Like in Austin, especially, right. you know, historically, the number that everybody wanted to hit is like, oh, if you can hit a 10 cap, that's like the white whale, that's the best deal. That's, yeah. you know, it's a more brainer. If you hit a 10 cap, you just buy it. I don't know if we've seen there's a deal. There's no 10 caps out there. Yeah, there's no 10 caps anywhere anymore, right? There's, so if you're looking at it, it's not. But with that being said, I mean, there's a lot of a lot of these properties. You're right. If you're buying correctly right now and your strategy is to hold on to that property for 7, 10, yeah. 15 years, obviously you you should look at that investment very differently than you'd look at it if you're holding it for, for one or two years. Or, or if you're saying what's the only thing that's important is how much money is this going to generate right now? So if you look at it through that that other lens of let's analyze this over a longer period of time, that probably puts you in a in a situation where you're probably more apt to win deals over somebody else that's looking in the in the very short term for what the numbers are looking like. So that's yeah, exactly well, right. It's not a competition. The, a mistake to make if you're a single family investor is to get sucked into the idea of it's a competition to get the best purchase price. What you're interested in. You want a fair purchase price, but what you're interested in is occupancy. And this gets back to what, this gets back to what we began with, right? Is who is this? Why it's so important to focus on who is my customer, right? The home is my product. Who's my customer? I got to find a product for the customer, not a customer for the product. That's backwards. I start with the customer and then I find the product. So if I know that I have a customer that's, let's say Austin, right? Anybody that lives here. We know the type of people that are looking for single family rentals. Like these are younger professionals that are starting families. They don't, they don't want to live in Huddow. They don't want to, they're not ready to move to Kyle. Sorry, Chuck. They still want to stay, you know, cause you know, they're not like me. I live in Georgetown. They haven't quite given up on being cool yet, but they, but they can't spend $800,000 in a house yet either. That's the chart. If you want to buy properties in, in Austin. So find the places that those folks are looking for, as opposed to the other way around. Right? So. If you can confidently project that you're going to have occupancy over five to seven to eight years, then you can use those numbers to get a lot more flexible on how much you're spending on the property that you're acquiring. Awesome. Love that. So let's talk a little bit about, obviously, head negotiator at Intera. Let's talk about some of those tactics that you're using from the negotiation side of things to acquire properties. Yeah. 
Well, I, I think that the most important thing, really actually in any negotiation, but it certainly applies here, and it actually applies even more in a real estate negotiation. But the first thing is we need to move away from an adversarial mindset where it's me versus my opponent and move towards like a partner mindset where I have, if the negotiation is a dance, I have a dance partner. And sometimes I'm going to be leading the dance and sometimes I'm going to be following. And if we do, if we do this thing well, we're going to be moving through a process in, a, in an effective or professional way. So what that means in terms of real estate is I need to understand if I'm, if I'm representing a buyer and I'm reaching out to a listing agent with an offer, I need to understand that we both have different jobs, but we win the same way. So my job is to represent my buyer and to take the offer that we put together and represent it in the best possible light. My partner's job on the other end of the negotiation, the listing agent, their job is to represent their seller and to take the offer that I'm presenting them, present that to their seller and find what's most fair for their seller and come back and I find what's fair for my buyer. Where things can go screwy is if I start to get mixed up on what my, what my role in this process is, right? If I start to get concerns that, you know, perhaps I'm going to like, what happens if I come in with an offer that's too loud, right? For this listing agent. And is that going to be reputationally damaging for me? Am I going to offend people? It depends on how you present it. If I present, if I'm interacting with the listing agent as my partner, then that's one thing. If I'm interacting with them as somebody who I, I'm trying to win and they need to lose for me to win, then that's a different thing. The outcome where everybody wins, we're trying to drive towards the same thing. The seller sells their house and my buyer buys their house at a price that both can handle. So I know that sounds really obvious and trivial, but it's just like what I was saying before about how we begin with what kind of customer we want and then find the product. Everything leads from there. So we begin with this is a partnership where we're trying to achieve the same aim. We're trying to find a fair price for this home that your seller can handle and that my buyer can handle. So then let's get really specific from there. If once we've understood that and if we've hopefully conveyed that by the way we're carrying ourselves with the listing agent, then we can start doing things like being a little bit more direct than we otherwise would. And my best negotiators, and, and Aaron, I know that you represent the sales side a lot, and I really love that you shared some of the same thing in your experience and some of the best negotiations that y'all have had. My best negotiators like ask the direct but professional type of questions that help to move the process forward. Things like what matters to your, let's you start with the most basic one. What offers do you have right now? Do you have other offers? What matters to your seller? Like, what do they care about? What are they trying to accomplish? A lot of times there are non-monetary things that, that really do they impact stuff. When my wife and I sold our house in Austin and moved to Georgetown, we had already had an accepted offer on our home in Georgetown. So the speed of closing was way more important to us than the price. And I told my listing agent, I don't mind people knowing that. And in fact, she was like hesitant for her. She's like, well, they might like, you know, they could use that against you. Like, how is it using it against me if that's my primary goal? <laughs> right. Right. That's, that's for me. That helps me. My goal is not to squeeze out every, my goal was not to squeeze out every thousand dollars. My goal was to sell the house quickly because I'm already on the hook for a down payment that I got to like, come up with in two weeks. Yeah. Um, so you only find those things out by asking and you get the answers by establishing a partnership. 
And again, I, I, I hope that this sounds very basic and fundamental. If this sounds basic and fundamental, then you're probably doing it the right way. But it's surprising how often in negotiation, the basic and fundamental things really just don't happen. And so again, that, that's my encouragement on that. What's your take on it? Because you're on the other side. So I, I, I kind of want to hear what your experience is on the sell side. Well, I, I, I definitely think you hit the nail on the head. We talked a little bit about this earlier in the week, but like for me, a big thing is understanding that your teammates and you're not opponents. You, you touched right. on that a minute ago. Typically when you're dealing with a real estate transaction, nobody wins until everybody wins, right? So there's not one person that's going to come out in front of everybody first. And it's literally everybody in the deal. So you have the buyer, the seller, the listing agent, the buyer's agent, the lender. Everybody is waiting until that day of closing before they can win. And so I think if you start looking at it that way and you have those conversations, I think most investors, especially maybe you're, if you're an investor that's not represented, like let's say you don't have an agent, you're representing for yourself. The first thing you should be doing is you try to build rapport with that listing agent because again, even though they don't represent your best interest, fiduciary duty is going to go to the seller for them. Um, they want, they have a very vested interest in making that deal close and, and close quickly. And so being able to build rapport with them and kind of turning them into your teammate, one, I think you'll find that they'll start opening up and sharing information with you that exactly. they otherwise wouldn't if you have a very tenuous or stressful negotiation. So they might tell you, in some cases, let's face it, they might tell you things that they shouldn't because, you know, there is, in some cases, a very big financial incentive for them to get that deal done. And I'm not right. saying agents out there are bad people. It's human instinct, right? If they don't get yeah. paid unless they sell that house. So whether consciously or subconsciously, they're going to do what they can to move the needle in, the, in that direction. And so I, I think far too often people do put themselves in this position to where it's like, it's a battle, it's me versus them, but yeah. really everything's moving in the same direction. And the, the way to get there the fastest is to get on the same team with each other. And I, you know, I think the other thing that goes into it is again, asking questions in sales, we call that discovery. So, you know, we right. have a mutual friend, Chuck, Chuck leads a sales team here at Listing Spark. You know, when we're talking to a seller that maybe let's say they're starting out as a for sale by owner. And we're trying to give them some information about listing spark to show that we might be a better option for them. You know, we're not talking at them and just saying, Hey, we're just so much better than your strategy you're using right now. You'd be stupid if you didn't go with us. It's what is the problem that, that they have right now? How do we solve that problem? How do we work together to move in the right direction? And I think negotiating a, a real estate transaction is kind of the same way. Like you talked about it, you have a house yes. to sell because you'd already found your new house. You're going to be in a pretty tight spot if you don't sell that house, pull the money out of it. You may have to dig into a retirement account. You may have to go to a family member and say, hey, bridge me, you know, while I'm trying to do both of these things. And so- Which is what we did, by the way, which is a very yeah, uncomfortable I mean, position. It, it is very uncomfortable and it's common. It's incredibly common. Yeah. And like you said, you were willing to potentially leave a little bit of money on the table and sure. somebody could get it, get it done quicker, right? And so the more- the more cordial your negotiation process is or the more serious you think a buyer is, you're going to give them that information sooner because you feel like, okay, this might be the right person to do it. I, I swear, I, Aaron, I'm not saying this to, to prop up investors or whatever, but in that particular case, we actually sold to an investor at about a, at, at about a 10K haircut. We had, I, like, hands of God, this is the truth. We had two offers in hand 
And we had an offer at list and we had an offer that was 10K down. So I think 98% the list or something like that. But it was, we had already lost, we had already lost a buyer because their loan fell through about two weeks in, by the way, like late enough that we got our EMD back. And we were two weeks before Christmas, we're already moved into our new house. And my wife and I sat down and we're like, you know what? I'll give up the 10K in return for, we had already, you know, it's Austin boom times. We already had a lot of equity in the house anyway. It's like, do I need another $10,000? But if I get that, I'm risking another yeah. bad buyer where I just take the cash buy and just be done with the whole thing. And that's, that really is what we did. There's reasons why money isn't always the number one consideration for people, but sometimes it is. And you got to find out. Uh, I actually want, I want to add one other thing that I think is useful for investors that large scale investors do naturally because of the nature of their vehicle. Maybe it's a little bit harder for, for smaller scale investors, which is you cannot become emotionally attached to the property that you're targeting. You just yep. can't. There cannot be emotion to it. So that's a lot easier to do if you're like an Intera client and you're, and you're trying to buy dozens of homes and you have an intermediary in Terra doing it for you and you're mostly seeing the results. It's a lot harder to do if you're dream building and you're looking and saying, this is perfect and we're going to renovate the kitchen and then like, I could already picture the type of family that's going to live here. And then that, and that's what leads to potentially bad decisions. But it's actually what leads to negative interactions between, uh, between agents, right? Where you have somebody who's very often the sellers are emotionally wrapped up in their property. And that makes sense. And they have an excuse. It's their home a lot of times. And it's understandable that they would be emotionally involved. But as a buyer, you don't need to be emotionally involved. And you should be the one that's operating with the, so if, if things become difficult, you could just politely back away and say, Hey, look guys, you know what? Maybe this isn't the right deal for y'all. We're going to look at some other properties and, you know, sorry to waste your time type thing in a polite and professional way. And you can maintain the, a good professional relationship with the listing agent, but you have, it's a class of negotiation mantra, right? You have to be willing to walk away. But I don't mean that in like a takeaway tactic. I mean, in a sense, you, you have to be okay with moving to the next target, which is why you should have seven or eight or nine targets at all times. You should be looking to win 20% of your offers at the most. I, I totally agree. And I think the other thing too, that a lot of investors should understand is that a lot of these deals are going to come back to you, right? So you make an offer and maybe that yep. seller hasn't come to that realization that the market has shifted or is shifting underneath their feet as we speak. And when you first get it, maybe they're a little bit insulted. Maybe they, they think they can still sell it for more and they decline the offer and they stay on the market. And the next thing you know, it's 45 days later, they haven't sold. They're really desperate to get it sold because they want to move on to the next chapter in their life. They, you know, they've made one, they've had a month where they made two mortgage payments, something. Right. And if you had a very good interaction with the listing agent and then that grit that really solid interaction with the listing agent is going to transfer over to the seller right so if i'm right. talking to one of our sellers and i can say you know hey this investor they've they made us an offer they showed us the comps you know it, it's not it, i understand why this might not be the deal for you right now but they seem like they're very well qualified they've got their stuff together and looks like they're going to actually get to the closing table and when that seller softens up, maybe two months later, when the house hadn't sold, you know, it happens all the time. Hey, do you think we can go back to that investor? Would their offer still be on the table if we contacted them? 
And if you are top of mind to that seller because you had a good interaction with them and they believe that you're going to be the person that's going to get it to the finish line, you know, you, there's a lot of times you get a second swing at it. So that's something to keep Absolutely. in mind too. If a lot of advantages, by the way. Advice, yeah. yeah. It, it, if uh, one they look at you like you're stealing yeah. their house from them because you're giving them a terrible offer and you were difficult to work with and maybe you were standoffish, you're not going to get a call. It, it, that's just the way it works. Yeah. Yeah, and that and that's why it's important to partner with a realtor. There's a lot of times that my team is instructed to not make an offer if we get the sense with it. We do a pre-offer call to the listing agent, and it's a discovery call, and we just chat them up a little bit, and we don't disclose what we're hoping to offer. But we there's a few things that we actually do need to learn. For example, if there's lease restrictions, we have to learn that ahead of time. Sometimes the right. HOA bylaws aren't as easy to find as you'd like them to be. Sometimes they're not up to date. But also, if we get a sense that our offer is going to be very poorly received, where it could be reputational damage, we pull the offer. We, we reach back out to our client because we have to protect our client's reputation as well as our own. We go back and say, you know, we can't do this. And at this point, you know, our clients trust us to make that call. And I think that's important for any investor because if you're targeting a, if you're targeting a, a type of customer, a renter, and you're probably targeting a region, there's a pretty good chance you're going to come across one of these listing agents again if you're looking at 10, 12, 14 properties. And so it is beneficial to you and it behooves you as a professional to be the type of person that says, hey, you know what, Aaron? I got to tell you, if if you guys, based on what you told me, I don't think I'm going to send my offer over. Something that people who aren't in real estate might not realize is that once an agent receives your offer, they have to show it to their client. And if the offer is really low, it could potentially make that agent look bad. They might come back at you and be like, Aaron, you told me a list of 400, dude. My first offer came in at 290. Like, maybe you're not such a good realtor. So you're doing yeah. a courtesy to the listing agent by potentially saying, hey, man, like, we might pull this one. Let me know if you've got any other properties in the area. I don't want to put you in this position. That's just a little, a little insider tip for you if you've never done this before. Yeah, totally fair. Totally fair. Well, it's hard to believe we're already at almost 45 minutes. So we've got a few minutes left. I wanted to kind of touch on the last talking point. I try to have some a similar conversation with every guest we have on because obviously we're dealing with a, with kind of a crazy market right now. We've been on this bull run forever, and now you know for really the last seven eight months the market's kind of been shifting. What are you seeing in the market? How do you think? How do you see things changing for investors now and over yeah. the coming months for the rest of the year? Sure, it's it's pretty straightforward. Is the market is the rental markets are strongest in places where job growth has been maintained and and inventory is low. And you could guess these type of cities. It's a lot of the Sunbelt stuff, right? So cities like a lot of like, you know, Tampa, Miami, Fort Lauderdale, Jacksonville. They're doing Houston, Dallas. Austin's a little bit tricky because the Austin's getting like, like I hope this is, I really hope it's not the case from the perspective of property availability, but we're getting a little bit of a San Francisco moment in Austin, which hopefully is starting to slow down. I'd be a little bit nervous about that, but the Austin suburbs, Taylor, these places that they have a thing in common, right? So what they have in common again is good jobs, the continuing jobs, right? And I got to tell you, here's another thing. Like, now for me, this is hard to say. I grew up in, in New England and, and New York and my parents lived in like old, interesting houses. I got to tell you, boring is good in this respect. You're not yeah. trying to sell lifelong like, homes to people. You're renting to people that are looking for a, a comfortable, safe, 
stable place to live for three or four or five years. So you're looking mm-hmm. for boring. Boring's good in this respect. So you're not looking yeah. for the house that, really? you, that, that you cool or interesting. You're looking for how long does it take to drive a large employers? Like, let's say we're here in the Austin area. Like, how far is this from Dell? How far is this from the new Tesla factory? Samsung's building a factory up in Taylor. Like, that's where I would be buying. You're right. looking at those type of things. You got 12,000 jobs coming into your place that's mostly farms and small towns right now. Those people are going to have to live someplace. That's 12,000 people that are going to be looking for homes. And most likely, they're going to be renting before they buy. Some of them might buy first, but they're going to be looking for places to rent. So that's what you're looking for. Boring, stable places in markets that were that aren't interesting. Interesting I, is bad. This investment type. I, I agree a thousand percent. It's funny you said that because again, I, I keep going back to that one rental where I was running out the college kids and I was like on paper that seemed like a perfect place. And I'm not gonna lie, I came out fine on it when I sold it. So it was, it was arguably probably an investment that I wouldn't find again today. But it was a nineteen forties built pier and beam. You know, it had, oh, it was cool. So be, yeah, it was a cool, awesome house, but it always broke. That cool. And, you know, that was back when two by fours were actually two inches by four inches. So if you're knocking <laughs> yeah. out a wall, nothing fits when you're trying to build it back on because all, all the lumber's smaller now. So I, I, I a thousand percent agree. Boring is better when you're kind of building your portfolio. The other thing too exactly. is I mean, they're easier. They're much easier to come up with your price and cop out when you're doing an analysis on it. If you're That's running why. a neighborhood out in a, you know, let's face it, if it's a cookie cutter kind of neighborhood built by your average home builder, there's going to be another floor plan that is the exact same to yours. And you're going to be able to know what that thing is going to rent for. And you're going to be able to track its appreciation rate over time. So like when you're looking at, you, you talked about earlier, guessing what a house is going to be worth five, seven, 10 years down the road. Well, one of the ways we do that is we look into the past, you know? How much did it appreciate over the last five, seven, 10 years? And if you look at a lot of those neighborhoods, they have a very consistent you know, chart if you're tracking its value. So, I mean, the predictability in real estate is a very good thing, right? The, the more unpredictable I'm you are- I'm pretty conservative about this stuff, Aaron, myself yeah. personally. Now, our, our investors have different strategies on this. We have investors that like to invest in new builds, we have, but we have other ones. Fits my temperament a little bit better. They don't want to buy anything that's less than, that's less than 10 years old for the reasons you just said. They want to know, they want a house that maybe has been sold once before the subdivision or the area is, you know, it's stable. It's predictable. You can, you can look at a quick little mini regression and you can have an idea of what's happened with the values before new builds. There's great stuff about them. You don't have to worry about renovation and all this stuff. Problem is you don't necessarily know what the future is, but again, people make tons of doing build for rent and buying new builds. So it's just different strategies work different ways and your risk tolerance. It just all depends on what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, yeah. the The predictability aspect is is very. We've got a new customer right now that we're working with, Ameritex Homes, and they predominantly mm-hmm. built a new construction for themselves to hold it into a large rental portfolio. And they've got something like now. four or five floor plans. That's all they built, and they built it all over Texas. Yeah. They buy infill lots, and they built something, and they can they have predictability up the wazoo because they know, hey, if I build this floor plan. I've built it a hundred other times and every time, depending on the area, it rents for, it rents for X or in this market or it rents for Y in this market. And, and so they're, they're selling a few, a, a, a small percentage of their portfolio now, and it makes the comps really easy because we're like, well, that right. floor plan, two streets over sold at this exact price. And it is literally a carbon copy 
of what this one sold for. So I, I, I do think being in those neighborhoods where it's pretty easy to track performance and you know, there's a good chance you're going to see a comp that's the same floor plan that was built before. There's a, there is a lot of value in that for sure. James, man, hard to believe we're at 50 minutes. Normally we do a little bit of Q and A. I, I we think at this point, we've dropped some pretty good knowledge on on everybody and yeah. we've got run out of time. So I will say this, I really appreciate you coming on. If anybody Absolutely. has any questions for James, James, how do they find you? If anybody's interested in working with Intera, what's the best way to reach you? I'm pretty good on LinkedIn. So if you message me on LinkedIn, I'll probably get back to you pretty quickly. I will get back to you pretty quickly. And yeah, and also if you're interested in working with Intera as a client, go to the website, interarealty.com or .ai. Search for it, you'll find it. And then they take and our, the, our, our team that works with our new clients, they're all investment guys themselves and all smart guys. And they'll concentrate conversation, see what we do matches with what you do. Yeah, cool. We're at about 25 markets, and I think they're published on our website. So if you're interested, take a look, see where we work. If we don't work where you are, maybe we're about to. So give us a call. Yeah. Awesome. All right, James. Thanks again for coming on. Everybody, thanks for joining us. Again, that was episode 18 of Real Estate Real Fast. Join us for the next one. You can also find this. If you joined us late and you missed the first part, you can find us on Apple Podcasts and Sport. Check us out at Listing Spark. We post all the episodes there as well. Listingspark.com. All right, James. Appreciate it, man. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Real Estate Real Fast. If you're a homeowner or real estate investor, you should go check us out at listingspark.com. You can find tips for improving and selling your house, comparing properties, listing your home on the MLS, and even sign up for the live show of Real Estate Real Fast. We typically go live on Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Central. Go check us out at listingspark.com.